and there is private investment there to support further enhancements and replacements of the, the rolling stock. It's much needed. So I think I'd really like to see less talk and more action. Um, I'd like to move on from saying we can't do things because of the pandemic. I'd like to be very innovative. We don't have the P&Ls of the operators back on one balance sheet. Managing directors are operating the train companies today aren't being allowed to be managing directors. Thank you very much indeed to the Rail Safety and Standards Board who have been a long-term supporter of, uh, of Think Tent. And I think it's about the third or fourth iteration of this debate, but something big has always come up between each time when we, when we meet. Uh, let me just tell you what the format's going to be. We've got a great panel. I'm going to give them uh, about five minutes each to set out their thoughts on the future of rail. Huge number of different aspects to it, of course. We're uh, hearing endless rumours, then confirmations and denials about what might happen to HS2. Uh, be a bold move by the Prime Minister to announce that he's cancelling it in his speech on Wednesday just as he departs Manchester, but, you know, who knows? Uh, we've, of course, had ongoing industrial action uh, on the railways. Uh, I was able to get up here on, on Sunday, but my initial plan was to come up on Saturday, and I was then actually reflecting, when was the last time I was able to attend Conservative Party conference by rail without interruption? Many, many years. We've had the COVID pandemic. I can't remember the last time that happened. So industrial strife, unfortunately, appears to be part and parcel of, uh, of the rail network at the moment. And I'm being intrigued to know what uh, our panellists think of that. And, of course, a whole range of other issues, ticket office closures and the like, uh, that, have, uh, uh, that we'll want to uh, turn our attention to. So I'm going to give each of our panellists five minutes. Let me introduce them in the order in which uh, I'm going to ask them to speak. On uh, my immediate left is Mark Phillips, the CEO of the Rail Safety and Standards Board uh, and a member of the Transport for London Board. Uh, more than 30 years of experience of working in the rail industry. Shortly after joining the Rail Safety and Standards Board as Director of Research and Standards in 2015, he was appointed uh, the CEO. Mark, uh, welcome back. Uh, the next speaker on my far right is Greg Smith, MP, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Buckingham. He's also the chair of the Free Market Forum group that we run from the IEA. Prior to being elected, uh, Greg, in 2019, Greg worked in print, design and marketing, serving clients across the manufacturing, medical technology and charity sectors, and served for 14 years on Hammersmith and Fulham Council. Um, on my uh, immediate uh, right is Mary Grant, Chief Executive Officer of Porterbrook, uh, which she joined in 2017, nearly, uh, it says over 24 years, so I'm going to say nearly quarter of a century, sorry oh, to age you, this is what your biog says, Mary, working in the UK and the international transport <laughs> sector. Her previous roles uh, include leading Eurostar's new fleet introduction and business change programme, managing director of new business development at National Express, divisional managing director of the bus and rail at First Group, and managing director at Scott rail, so quite a CV. And last but by no means uh, least on my far left is Chris Loder, the Conservative Member of Parliament for West Dorset since 2019, but prior to that had a 20-year career in the rail sector, beginning at the front line as a train guard and moving on to be head of um, uh, operations for C2C and working with Deutsche Bahn to connect London and Frankfurt by train. Please give all of our panellists a very warm welcome. <laughs> 
Mark, there's a lot to get our teeth into and many different <coughs> angles to the future of rail, I think, at the moment. Uh, we keep repeating this panel with your generous support just because there's always something new and challenging to talk about. So your five minutes to get to grips with the issues, Mark, starts now. Thank you very much, uh, Mark, for the introduction. And uh, I think in my career, I can hardly remember a time when rail has not been the centre of news for one aspect uh, or another, whether it's actually some uh, through the privatisation era, through some mm -hmm. of the tragic accidents that we've had, through some of the successes as well about some of the major projects and uh, new opportunities, but also at the moment, I think, in terms of the controversy that surrounds an, a number of uh, issues, whether it's industrial relations and uh, you mentioned HS2. But I think it's important to note at the moment that sadly, from an industry point of view, rail is not at the centre of the government's uh, priorities. And I think we, within the industry, have got to work hard to help uh, make it the centre of those priorities because rail itself is one of the big enablers to help grow the economy. And there are many, many good case studies where investment in the rail network and public transport more widely actually helps provide better uh, education, housing and work opportunities. And sometimes you do have to take the long-term view in order for those things to be uh, realised. And I think probably at the moment one of the reasons that uh, it's not a priority is because we are dealing in short-term uh, issues and short-term policies. But to invest in rail, it does take substantial amounts of uh, investment capital and it does take time to realise those benefits and also sometimes quite a lot of uh, political steeliness to make those decisions that can be unpalatable to some parts of society in order to, to, to generate those long-term uh, wins. And I think a good example, and I you know, speak from a declared interest uh, regarding Crossrail as I'm a member of the TfL board, but that was obviously opened uh, a year last uh, May and is proving tremendously successful. In fact, if you uh, operate and, and work in and around London, it is um, almost inconceivable that you could imagine uh, London operating now without it. And in July, we had something in the order of over 700,000 journeys in one day. But I think one of the most interesting factors with that, and it wasn't considered uh, perhaps in the early design uh, stage where it would provide a lot of capacity relief for the central line, but actually nearly a third of the journeys are non-abstractive. So those are new journeys where people have chosen to work and travel uh, and live in, in different um, places which are now possible to connect through um, the advent of uh, Crossrail. And I think it's a really good real-life example of how a new um, uh, line can actually provide tremendous opportunities that didn't exist um, before. And I think in terms of the National Rail Network, particularly looking at how we can develop business cases that can grow the opportunities to provide more electrification so that we can demonstrate our decarbonisation credentials. We can provide a better performance, more reliability and overall a better customer service that actually will help us grow the economy as well as grow the rail business. But clearly within the industry we've got to improve our customer offer, we've got to be more focused on the customer, providing simpler ticketing, easy to navigate uh, the network itself so that particularly uh, for those that are less familiar with using it on a regular basis can feel confident in how they travel. 
But clearly, we've got to win around um, uh, the government. Uh, we are dependent on a lot of uh, taxpayers' support still, but we do need to demonstrate that we can grab hold of the industry ourselves and manage a better outcome by uh, being in charge of it and not being so dependent on uh, government uh, decisions and ministerial direction. And I think that's one of the overriding factors at the moment that I think we would desperately like to get more control. And whether that's through GBR or through greater collaboration amongst the different parties in the industry, but I think that's really, really important. Thank you. Great. You stuck to your five minutes perfectly. Thank you so much, Mark. Greg, over to you. Your five minutes start now. Uh, thank you, Mark. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, I'll declare an interest from the start. Uh, I'm probably one of the most outspoken people against HS2 in the House of Commons, and that comes from two uh, perspectives. One, my constituency that has 19 miles of the HS2 trace through the middle of it, and I don't use this phrase lightly, it brings abject human misery. Abject human misery uh, along the line. And HS2 is one of those projects that I don't think is fully understood from the perspective of what it's like to live amongst the construction of uh, one of these projects. The number of my constituents who aren't just a bit fed up, they aren't just a bit grumpy, they aren't uh, just mildly irritated by it, but the number of constituents that sit in front of me in tears because of what HS2 does, it is an absolute destroyer of lives and destroyer of communities. And going beyond that, that, that human level, we just can't afford it as a country. And a point that I make time after time, uh, particularly putting my free market forum hat on, particularly putting uh, my perspective from an economic standpoint, this is a project that allegedly has great demand, that allegedly people are going to use, that allegedly is going to transform rail, but not a single private pound was offered up to try and pay for this thing. It was entirely a project for which the hands were outstretched, uh, wanting uh, taxpayers to fund entirely. Now, I get it that these big infrastructure projects are very unlikely to ever be entirely privately funded. But the big red shining beacon, accompanied by the loudest of alarm klaxons, should have been that nobody wanted a piece of it. Nobody even wanted a 1% share of it. And to me, that should have absolutely killed off the idea from the start before we started jumping from 30 billion to 70 billion to 106 billion uh, to Lord Barclay's, uh, you know, that's a Labour peer, that, that's me working with a Labour peer, Lord Barclay's uh, calculations that actually this thing could end up touching 200 billion pounds. So I very much hope the Prime Minister does come uh, to the conclusion that HS2 needs to be scrapped and stopped, not just north of Birmingham, uh, but frankly, the whole damn thing. Because if we are just left with this stump of a railway that runs from not central London to not central Birmingham, yeah, that is just an offence and is preposterous uh, to absolutely anybody. Again, Lord Barclay, a Labour peer, has calculated that we can get the loss down to £8 billion. That is still an eye-watering amount of money that should never have been allowed to have been wasted in the first place. But it is a damn sight better, I would put it, to lose that £8 billion, uh, to repurpose some of the land, maybe see what housing or commercial development uh, can be put on it where communities want it for the land that can't be restored to its agricultural or former 
use, or perhaps uh, sections of it for road. Uh, the tunnels under the Chilterns could potentially be used for that purpose. It is better to lose that eight billion uh, than to risk another 70, 100, 150 billion on finishing a project that I just don't believe anyone is ever actually going to choose to use. Who, which rail passenger wanting to go from Birmingham to London is going to say, you know what, I'm going to get on this train, and yeah, it's quite fast, uh, but it's going to dump me out in Old Oak Common, uh, which isn't where I want to go, because they probably want to go to the West End or to the City of London or to somewhere like that, where it's going to take them longer than the time they saved to get into that, that place which is useful. Now, both with my Transport Select Committee hat on and my constituency MP hat on, I talk to rail users and uh, groupings all the time. And I'm yet to hear anyone clambering for the ability to go anywhere 20 minutes faster. The vast majority of my constituents say to me that they want to be able to get a seat on the train. That's certainly my experience travelling into Westminster from Haddenham and Tame Parkway uh, on a daily basis. I want to get a seat on the train. They want, they don't mind whether it's the train Wi-Fi or a decent 4G, 5G connection the length of the line so that they can do some work on the train. Quite like a toilet that doesn't resemble the facilities tent on day four of Glastonbury. Nobody, nobody is arguing that they want to get somewhere 10 minutes faster. So I think we just need to put this sorry project to bed I, I will be delighted to be you know, fully support. I can see there's a whip in the audience. I'll be delighted to fully support the government uh, by celebrating the cancellation of HS2, if that is, does indeed uh, come to the fore. And then we can get on with the important work that I've seen through the Select Committee, that I've seen as a constituency MP, in some meaningful rail reform and rail connections that are actually going to make a difference to people's lives. When we went to Leeds and Bradford with the Select Committee last year, getting a station in Bradford, getting, a sta getting that regional connectivity up and running that connects not just the big cities of the UK, because we've already got rail lines that do that, but connect the villages and the towns and the cities of the north, of the Midlands, and of the south too. I have another railway being built through my constituency, East West Rail. That is a useful railway. It's got a new station at Winslow. It connects uh, for its first phase, Oxford through to Winslow, to Bletchley and, and Milton Keynes, and in time will go all the way to Cambridge. It's that local regional connectivity that actually will make the difference, uh, hopefully on private money, although East West Rail isn't, uh, on some of those projects for the future, proving, proving that there genuinely is demand for it. And the last comment I'll make, uh, Mark, before we, we, we extend this out a little bit, is that we do have a problem with the way we do infrastructure in this country, whether it's rail or anything else. An idea is floated, in the case of HS2, an idea was floated under the last Labour government. We then proceeded to have, in excess of a decade, having a huge row about a concept. And this is the same in whatever infrastructure project you look at. Then eventually you get the green light on whether that concept is good or not. And only then, only then, do you start to design it.
And of course, that's where the cost overruns that the taxpayer was always going to bail out come in. Because when the engineers get on the ground, you realise, well, actually, you can't do it like that. It might just look good on paper, but you can't do it like that. You're going to have to realign this road. That's another 100 million quid. You can't put a bridge over that. We're going to have to you know, completely move a gas main. That's another 50 million quid. And these things just snowball out of control. So we do need that wider debate about how we do infrastructure in this country and how we come to the conclusions on what's a goer and what's not. Greg, thank you very much. Mary, the floor is yours. Oh, that's a hard one to um, to uh, to come back on. So I think what I'll uh, the thread that I'll come on, Greg, is on on reform and the real debate that I see many familiar faces in the room that on our on our last session that Hugh Merriman, the real minister, was at, said what the importance for us going forward is actually getting on with reform. Um, not legislation, further reviews, because there's a lot of um, an enormous amount of activity and support within the core framework of the UK rail infrastructure we have to deal with now. Now, it was great to hear him mention the integrated rail plan, 96 billion, so that would suggest that that is still very much part of the planning. And uh, I'm delighted to um, to hear that because it's incredibly important, as is probably understanding that one of the biggest infrastructure costs or operating costs within the industry today, and I represent the private sector, purely private investment into, into rail, is of course as network rail, as it should be, it's infrastructure provider. But let's not kid ourselves, I mean uh, the 22-23 legacy debt is now at 58.8 billion and the interest cover alone is at 4.1 billion. So, you know, it's a lot of money to just cover the costs and actually looking more at reform and efficiencies and actually getting on and taking decisions to improve the reliability, operation, capacity and safety of this network is absolutely vital. So turning to the rolling stock providers, they have been the one true constant since privatisation. We're joined today, we've got Malcolm Brown and, and Dave Jordan from Angel Trains. I represent Porterbrook and that has been a huge success throughout the entire privatised framework. We've invested over 20 billion into assets, so that's an investment amount that stayed off the public balance sheet, and, uh, and that's what we would like to continue doing. I was looking at some numbers the other day. We have three and a half billion that we've, we've done when we've been able to. There hasn't been a new build deal on the market since 2019. That was the last one. And uh, in the last five years, in the overhaul space, again, similar to, to Malcolm and Dave, I, I clocked up over a quarter of a billion of refurb innovation and support to government and the sector that at the moment I'm not actually making any return on. So we actually provide a long-term platform for buying these assets. We'll take the risk and then take the residual value risk. That's what we do. That's, um, that's how our business models are set up. But I think the, the one message I have today in talking about the future of rail in Britain is about taking decisions. Because by 2030, there's 2,500 vehicles in the industry have to come off the network. And they have to come off that network because they're at life end. So that means that either they're obsolescent, we simply can't get the parts, or their body integrity, we don't think is fit for purpose, safety being our number one priority on the railway, as always. Now, as we know, or many of us in this room know, it is taking from notification to train on the track, earning revenue, about six years at the moment. So we are going to run out of time shortly in terms of delivering the capacity that we need today. These aren't vanity projects. It's not about doubling or trebling. This is about replacing. Incredibly important. Now, I'm told, well, decisions are tough at times. You know, we're recovering from the pandemic. Now, 
France and Germany have reported results in their both their half one quarters that they're now ahead of their revenues in 2019 by 18 and 19 percent respectively. So why can't we take that mentality on growth? And then the other part on that as well is, uh, is understanding that that period of time, it's about six years, that construction phase, that paying of that, uh, of, of that train, that is borne by our balance sheet. That doesn't hit Treasury the taxpayer. We pay for that, happy to pay for that. Let's just get on with it. And in being able to get on with it, we can support our manufacturing partners and our supply chain partners. You've heard in the news about Alstom's conundrum in Derby. We've got Hitachi worried at Newton Ycliffe, another in 2025. We've seen some of the second tier suppliers worrying about um, future pipeline. And as an industry, and we, and we support well, I think in excess of three quarters of a billion uh, jobs in the UK, we need to take this very, very seriously. And there is private investment there to support further enhancements and replacements of the, the rolling stock. It's much needed. So I think I'd really like to see less talk and more action. Um, I'd like to move on from saying we can't do things because of the pandemic. I'd like to be very innovative. We don't have the P&Ls of the operators back on one balance sheet. Managing directors are operating the train companies today aren't being allowed to be managing directors. And that was the two things that uh, Mark Harper said at the Bradshaw address in February that he would address. And they have not been addressed. So I think notwithstanding challenges and 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 it's very easy to say we must get on and take the decisions there's a, there's there's that it, it gets very complicated at times but those particular parts of managing the reforms that are currently within the control doesn't require any legislation really needs to be done now to support six and seven years of multiple thousands of vehicles having to come off the network is really imperative. We crack on with it now and use the balance sheets of the private sector that want to get in there and support government and supply chain partners. Bless you. Thank you very much, Mary. And um, Chris, your time starts now. Thank you, Mark. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'd first of all just like to make the key point that it is not sustainable for billions and billions of pounds of taxpayers' cash to continue to bankroll the railways in the way that it is doing today. And it has been doing since the pandemic. Um, it's even more of a shame because, of course, before the pandemic, the railway, when you look at operational costs and revenue, was actually generating money for the exchequer. But now, of course, we are billions the other side of that, and it cannot continue. And that's why I'm so pleased today to be able to contribute to this debate, both in terms of HS2 but also in terms of the domestic railway uh, as well. When um, we had this debate last year um, in Birmingham, I remember quite vividly saying that one of the key problems with HS2 is that the entire country does not understand what HS2 does for them. And I, I'm, not just, I'm not just talking about um, that, you know, if, you're, if you've got a station on the line of route, I'm, t I'm talking about the indirect economic benefit that such enormous amounts of taxpayers' cash goes into investing uh, a high-speed line between several, uh, two, two or three stations, or more in due course potentially, um, when actually if you live in West Dorset you have the worst frequency rail line in the country. Um, those, that's one example, but the country does not understand why a project such as High Speed 2, 
which I don't think anyone has actually clearly demonstrated there is a net benefit, um, where the chief executive salary, um, I'm not sure the current one, but the last one who resigned a few months ago, was the highest paid civil servant of the entire civil service, that, that, that is just not understood by the wider population. And um, as a result, um, that has generated, I think, the political situation we see now about HS2. There are clearly some big questions to be answered. And all I can say is thank God that the government is actually properly testing this in terms of finances to say, is this right that this amount of money is spent? Clearly, I don't know any more than that. But it is right. And I think it's been, um, it's been a failing of the HS2 company not to recognise the fact that it's had to make the case to the whole of the United Kingdom because the constituents who live in my constituency are contributing to HS2 in the same way they are here and in Birmingham, but they don't see any benefit. It, that, of course, has been put into stark contrast um, and more so, I think, than people think, have been brought into the debate around ticket offices. So there are a few things that people really see as something that's good about the railway at the moment, I'm sorry to say, but I think it's that, that's the feedback I get from my constituents. One of the things they really like about the railway is that when they go to the station, they can get someone to help them, particularly if you are um, maybe retired or you're older and you're not IT savvy. Um, that, I think, has been... Um, it's been a bit of a disaster, frankly, the whole ticket office situation. And I'm hoping, I, I'm, some of you may have seen, I've been actively lobbying um, uh, against uh, that. I think some, some of how the train companies have uh, functioned in that way have been really appalling, including my own local operator. Um, but I think it's right that there has been a wider realisation that actually people see ticket offices, they value ticket offices, and when they've said, oh, actually, hold on a minute, um, I get that we've got to spend less money uh, in the railways, but why are we spending tens of billions on HS2 if actually you need to take away my ticket office clerk and my station assistant? Um, that, of course, leads me on to some um, matters about trade unions. Some people in the press have said yesterday it was quite quiet here in Manchester. Well, they probably didn't, didn't realise that um, depending on where, you, where in the country you were, you were probably still suffering from the ability or inability of being able to get here by train because of the uh, Aslef train driver strikes that were happening mainly on Saturday. It is high time, in my opinion, that when these Aslef train drivers decide to strike again, they are told their job is at risk. It is absolutely disgraceful that you have train drivers who are paid on average, give or take, £60,000 a year for a 35-hour week over four days. Often Sundays are not included in that period of time and they are refusing a £5,000 pay rise. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but broadly that is the situation we face because 
as left themselves are now driving the rail industry into the ground. They are doing it, I'm afraid to say, but it's true, they are doing it because they want to drive the Conservative government into the ground. The General Secretary of ASLEF is on the Labour National Executive and is the coordinator of Labour trade unions. Um, it is high time that we took a stand and we took some short-term pain to deal with this because otherwise we're just letting this go on and on and on. And maybe, Mark, I'll get to mention a little bit later some of the things about GBR and the situation we face with domestic railway, but conscious... My time is up. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you to all of our um, panellists. There's been plenty of time to touch on a number of issues. I'm going to ask a few questions from the chair to get the conversation going, but I'll be looking to you guys for comments and questions from the audience shortly. Look, I don't want the whole thing to be about HS2, even though it's a breaking news story, so maybe we can kind of knock that on the head uh, now. Mark, let me sort of start with you. What, what has gone wrong here? Um, it's not often that in my... Uh, tenure at the IA. In fact, I think this is probably the only example that I've had to issue a press release apologising to the media for an error. And the, the error that we apologised for was some years after the initial press release, where we had said on television and radio, we thought HS2 was going to cost 80 billion, not the 30 billion or so that the government had said. And once the estimates topped 80 billion, I apologised that the IA had undercooked the figures. The numbers have gone up and up and up and up and up and up and up. I guess it's now a, a political decision as much as an economic decision uh, whether to cancel it. Uh, I mean, I, I was tearing my hair out the suggestion that they can't cancel it because the Prime Minister just happens to be in Manchester. I mean, that seems to be the height of short-termism. But, Mark, what, what's gone wrong here? Why have the costs spiralled out of control on estimates I've seen this would, would be if it went ahead... Um, the most expensive per mile of track anywhere ever built. It, it does seem to have spiralled out of control, no? Well, I'm not going to get too much into the individual detail because I think that could uh, take all, all day. But essentially, I'm a big fan of a guy called Brent Freiberg who's done a lot of work in terms of why big projects go wrong. And a lot of it is around... What is the basic specification? What is it that you want to achieve? And how can you make sure that you control the project within that specification? And that goes for almost anything, whether it's mm -hmm. actually a domestic project you're doing at home or whether it's uh, an infrastructure project. And in fact, uh, I think Brent has done a lot of work with HS2, but politics has also intervened in this. So there are a lot of changes to scope and how the project has been uh, developed and devised as a consequence of political decisions to meet um, political criteria. Now, I fully understand that for uh, people that live in um, the Chilterns, they probably didn't want to see much of the network, so there was a decision taken about putting a lot of it in tunnels and cuttings, and that, of course, drives cost because of the nature of the infrastructure. In order to deliver a high-speed line, you've got to have uh, the, uh, the track fully immersed in concrete such that effectively it doesn't uh, move within the uh, confines of the tunnel. So those are additional costs that you build into the nature of the, the line. And essentially, the, the top line uh, is about speed and the infrastructure that you require to deliver that speed. And all of those drive particular considerations in terms of how you design. Whether that's what um, Britain needs for the size of the country, that's, again, a decision made essentially by politicians. What is it do you want to buy? Mm -hmm. And so those things, I think, have contributed a lot to it. More recently, you've had the impact of COVID that has driven inflation across whatever it is you do, and that has driven up supply chain costs. So that will drive further the impact of that. So there are a number of combinations of, of different things that have contributed to it. 
But I think ultimately there is this sort of lack of goodwill towards actually making it happen and realising that the benefits probably won't be felt in our lifetime. They may well be, you know, the generations to come. If you think those of us who have travelled up from London today on the um, uh, West Coast Main Line, Stevenson, uh, when he built that, would have not envisaged uh, building it and what its impact would be 200 years mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. the event. And I think uh, you have to look at the very long term, not just necessarily in the 30-year green book uh, time horizon that a lot of these projects are evaluated against. Greg, what's your thoughts on that? You lamented, you know, how desperately slow we are at infrastructure projects. Okay, this was one that you were opposed to, but, I mean, it, it, it is sort of depressing, isn't it, that you have a discussion about this for 20 years, you spend a lot of money on it, then, I mean, I don't know, I'm not taking bets on it yet, but, the, you know, it may well be cancelled. Sort of, I mean, isn't there a case of make your mind up and get on with it, as Mark was sort of saying, rather than if, if the project scope is changed endlessly, no wonder the costs go out of control, more local resistance. Doesn't there need to be a bit more uh, decision-making in this country? Forget which projects you like mm. and which you don't. The same could equally apply to airports, for yeah. sake of argument. You haven't expanded any airport in the south of England since the end of the Second World War. Uh, quite extraordinary. But, I mean, it shouldn't have been drawn out to it. It should have already been built, shouldn't it? Well, that's the point I was trying to make in the comment I made in my opening remarks about the way we do infrastructure. The very fact that we have these decade-long rows about concepts before you've even mm -hmm. done any detailed design. That is a huge part of it. If you actually did the detailed design as much as you can first, you wouldn't fall into these massive great bear traps when roads need realigning and ancient woodlands appear that nobody saw on a map before and, and, and all of these factors. But I would also say, uh, and this is relevant to HS2 as it is you know, any other rail project or road building project, that so long as the taxpayer will always bail it out, there's no control. And that's why I think it's so important to lock in a private sector test to all of these uh, projects. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not, suggesting, not suggesting for one moment that these projects can be entirely privately funded. But the, so long as there is private capital at risk, you will find that these cost overruns won't creep in because there is someone there actually mm. holding uh, these contractors and bodies set up to deliver infrastructure to account. Yep. Right now... The taxpayer will always bail them out. They know that, and that's what gets these massive cost overruns into place. I do want to move on from HS2, but I should let Mary and Chris have their say. Mary, what's your take on what's gone wrong here? I mean, you were focusing a lot in your opening remarks on, you know, we actually need to get some nitty-gritty practical things right to get things rolling. What, what, what do you think's, you know, gone off the rails in, as far as HS2 is concerned? Well, I think Mark and Greg, for me, got good the two points. First of all, it's the whole cost and scope and then the change in variability and probably from the outset it's been going on for so long I think the whole communication and the, the local um, um, interface with the communities had, had huge challenges um, and, and I know that because my, my sister lives in this in this area um, but also it's where was the private sector in being encouraged and actually I'd say that today in much of the domestic infrastructure where we look at schemes and we go round and round in houses about looking to fund infrastructure signalling replacement and then it comes back always well we can you know we can just borrow it cheaper in the public mm -hmm. balance sheet but <laughs> it's creaking so I would say both both scope and uh, and value of where you're getting um, private sector involvement in this scheme. Chris, very quickly, your take on it. What's sort of, you know, we, we still don't know whether it will go ahead or not or in what form, but, you know, what's gone wrong? I think I'd just end up repeating all the comments that have been made so far. I just really want to say that I was a huge advocate of HS2 
I remember coming here in 2015 and, you know, all the people stood outside the Midland Hotel with the big white elephants and everything, and I remember debating them hard and fast, saying HS2 was the right thing to do. It had to come here. It would be brilliant for this area. It would do so much. The fact that I, I mean, you know, I don't want to compare myself to Greg and saying I'm very middle of the road, but I, <laughs> I, I genuinely, you know, I genuinely thought it was the right thing to do. But when you've got someone like me who's gone from that place mm -hmm. to now being opposed for what I believe to be fairly sensible, pragmatic, realistic financial reasons, there has something gone terribly mm -hmm. wrong. And it's in that time between 2015 and probably a couple of years ago um, where you know the mojo's been lost and the fact that we're at this place now where it, you know might not even get to central London I mean you know what's that about Mark you wanted to come in very briefly then then I'll move us on to the wider picture of rail than just this than just that yes um, so I worked here in the sort of mid uh, 90s for, for several years and you know, I know from that experience that the local network is poor. So to get around the northwest, driving is really uh, one of the main uh, options available because the connectivity is relatively poor and slow and uh, the intervals in service are um, uh, not in sufficient enough to, to rely on. But I think also the region shouldn't have to be in a place where it's either or. It's either improving the local network or it's a better connection to London because at the moment they, they probably have the worst of, of both worlds. And as you're approaching Manchester, if you look on the left-hand side, uh, there is a long train shed, and that was built for Eurostar, and it was built for Eurostar in 1994-95, for the expectation that those trains would actually start uh, from Manchester and go right through to Paris and beyond. Uh, yeah. And that never happened. We spent two or three years digging up the West Coast Main Line to make some improvements and also a lot of work on the signalling system to make it compatible with those Eurostar trains. And they have never appeared. And now we, we, we stand potentially to lose uh, HS2. So I think for the people in the northwest, they are not getting a good rail um, investment. And we have to provide that in order to improve the chances of people and the opportunities available here. Okay, let's look at the wider rail network, and I, I wanted to ask each of you, and, and Mary, I'll start with you, on what you might call bounce-back ability from COVID, right? You were mentioning, actually, France and Germany, you know, seem to have bounced back. We haven't. Was it still down, still by about a fifth, am I in, right, in journey terms, since the pandemic? So, what's going wrong here? Uh, and, you know, this isn't necessarily a question or a criticism of the, of the railways as such. This could be working from home has been stickier than we thought it is. It could be uh, the industrial unrest, I guess, people losing some confidence in it. But why? What, what have the French and the Germans done right here? And why are we lagging in terms of getting back to pre-COVID numbers? I think the, the principal reason, certainly from the, from the research and the analysis that I've got in front of me, is that we still are behaving that we a little bit that we're right in the thick of a pandemic. Yeah. So our P&L and the operators are is fragmented. You know, revenue sits with Treasury, cost sits with the department. We're taking some tactical decisions on cutting minimal services already. Talking about is the Wi-Fi switched on, switched off? But just remember that number I said about 4.1 billion for servicing uh, a publicly controlled debt today in terms of saying where is the value, where is the growth uh, ambition 
And we've lost that. And we had that before. You know, the, the, the franchising um, framework was in a deficit in the past, you know, mm -hmm. and we got ourselves into surplus. And I think we did some rough calculations mm. last year of how you could, you know, on average yields, work that out with, you know, uh, I think we worked out about three extra rail journeys in a year. And I know that's just across, across the piece, but it's really not that big a deficit to bridge if we had the momentum within the contracting frameworks which are not there at the moment and I think that's the thing that's fundamental we've got to get some innovation back and stimulate but tactical sort of services being cut back the challenges with the ongoing industrial unrest reliability and performance is, is particularly poor at the moment of course then the customer experience we talk about putting passengers first one of the William Shapps reform was all about putting the passenger first, and I don't mm -hmm. think we. I think we kind of we're losing the uh, the focus on that. Chris, what's your view on the the lack of bounce back ability? That you know, I guess I can't remember what predictions you all made last year, but well, I was sort of assuming by now we'd be back to pre-COVID levels. Um, in the operating world, I think the the private sector appetite has actually been fairly sedate. Again, this time last year in Birmingham, I said to the audience and for all those of you who have a role to play in the private sector, you have an enormous role to play in finding this solution. Um, please, please come forward and be more vocal about that and share the real options that there are to make things better more, more widely. The reality is today we've got a group of train operators across the board who are basically afraid to speak out, probably because of contractual relations and so on with the DFT. But, you know, can I get one operator to say openly, actually, you know, we could transform this loss-making business? How can it be that the South Western Railway franchise, or current South Western Railway business unit, that used to return, out of a billion pound turnover, used to return 400 million pounds profit every year to the Treasury, and still be in a loss-making situation without the parent group saying, actually, we can do something really exciting about this. Um, I, don't think it's just as, I don't think it's just as straightforward for me to point the fingers at, at private operators. I think the contractual framework has not enabled it. I find it, frankly, incredible that we've got non-consulted uh, uh, management contracts being extended without really many people knowing about it because they are costing money and they're also kind of... Um, gearing in this level of sedateness for the coming two or three years. Mark, your take. Are these disappointing? But even if they are disappointing, they are other factors involved rather than necessarily specifically factors to do with the efficiency or otherwise of the rail network. So I think there are a number of factors at play. First, uh, we should recognise that the demand patterns were changing pre the pandemic. So we were already yeah. starting to see a softening of the regular commuter market, particularly into, into London, but some other cities as well. Um, uh, before uh, 2020. So that was already starting to change. Uh, and then I think remember that the industry was instructed to continue operating normally through the pandemic when others of us, including uh, office workers like me, were told to work at home. So there was a very clear instruction that the industry mm -hmm. had to continue to operate when they were really only providing services for essential workers. Mm -hmm. um, and Post-pandemic, there has most definitely been a change in terms of the commuting market. Mm -hmm. But the uh, leisure market is 
more than uh, we used to uh, exceed uh, pre-pandemic. So the, the leisure market and the business market is almost back to, to where it uh, used to be. So it is principally around the commuter market, which um, particularly in the south and the southeast, that funded a lot of the um, investment in, in the wider network and particularly in the rolling stock area mm -hmm. that, um, that Mary um, uh, represents here today. And we are going to have to recognise that the, the, these changing demand patterns now need to be reflected in the service that we offer. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to think about different timetabling solutions and, and options that cater for that. Perhaps a slightly more uh, regular interval service in the um, later morning um, than we probably, because people want the opportunity to take their children to school. They want the opportunity to perhaps come and collect them from school. And we have to start to reflect that in the offer that we make. But at the moment, and, and this is largely dictated by the DFT, it is still very much a traditional nine to five timetable, essentially yeah. around that morning and evening peak. And we need to think about how, and again, perhaps to, to Mary's point, we need to have some more commercial innovative approaches to actually starting to provide that service. And I think looking at how the contracts could be reshaped to enable and encourage that, I think is, is going to be really important uh, for the success of the industry going forward. Greg, very quickly, are you surprised, disappointed, unsurprised about the lack of bounce-back ability since COVID? I don't know if it's bounce-back ability, it's understanding that has just been talked about, the change in demand. The pandemic has changed the world forever. The advent of these dreadful video conferencing uh, uh, systems and Zoom and Teams and everything, which you know, I personally hate. I'd much rather meet people face-to-face. -face. But it has changed the world that people are now not travelling to conduct business meetings or you know, maybe even visiting friends and family at times. You know, they're opting for the FaceTime or the Zoom or the Teams instead. And you know, that is regrettable, but it's a practical reality of life. Yet, as was just mentioned, weekends and leisure travel are almost off the chart. I you know, test to that taking my three-year-old into London on the Chiltern Line uh, a couple of months ago where you know, there were no seats and you know, trying to contain a, you know, be honest, slightly hyperactive three-year-old uh standing up on a train you know for, for 45 minutes or whatever which might not seem like a long time but i assure you it really is with him um we the, the the operating companies have got to rise to that challenge mm -hmm. how they do that is a is actually interconnected with many other things, though. Because if you just take Chilton as an example, and Mary spoke about fleet renewal and rolling stock coming to the end of life, one of Chilton's big problems at the moment is they used to be the gold standard of railways, but all their rolling stock is so, let's put it how it is, knackered, that they're spending more time in the repair workshops than it is on the track, which means you're frequently getting two-car trains rather than five-car trains, and people are experiencing a bad right. service and then factoring the strikes and people are just leaving the railways as a result of that. And unless there can be a compelling, good commercial offer for consumers to use, that bounce back ain't going to happen. I'm going to come to the audience for questions in just a minute. I just wanted very briefly to touch on the industrial unrest. I mean, uh, Chris, you mentioned it and I'll start with you. But this, this seems to me now very, very serious, that it seems that we seem to be in a permanent in industrial unrest. And, you know, is there a case for somehow, I don't know how to grip it or resolve it once and for all? Because you know, just as a passenger, my sort of fear is this is just going to go on forever unless, yeah. there's, you know, you, unless there's some way of grasping it. You actually suggested uh, putting the uh, jobs at, uh, on the line for it. But uh, I mean, this has you know, gone beyond, this now seems to be permanent industrial dispute. Right? Yeah, and that's why I say we've got to grasp it. I know it sounds like a nuclear 
option, and, and to be frank, it is from what I've suggested earlier. But we are you know, the railways successively the reputation and deliverability of any sort of consistent passenger service has now become so bad. This is exactly what the unions have wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I'm afraid, you know, any any reasonable. I, I outlined some of the numbers earlier. You know, I'm afraid they're just grounded in greed, as far as I'm concerned, on the part of the train drivers' union. And it's time for, for us to say, no, we, we can't go on uh, with it. I think I'll probably just end up repeating earlier points, Mark. Mark, what do you think? I mean, it is, I mean, again, anecdote about that. It's been just so wearing on the number of journeys that, you know, I would love to rely on trains for that. You know, I'm becoming, you know, having been, I still am an enthusiast for rail travel, but do you think it's now having such a deleterious effect we've, we've got to kind of somehow grasp this nettle sort of solve it or we're just going to have on-running uh, industrial strife on the on the railways well i think the unions are probably resolved to the fact that it is going to be long-running probably through until the election because there doesn't seem to be any appetite to uh, engage in meaningful discussions and um, uh, consultation about it uh, i think it is important to, to remember that the uh, staff involved have not had a pay rise since 2019. And they, uh, they, det- they were quite happy not to accept any pay rise at all during the pandemic because of the impact on uh, the industry, so they accepted that. But they do want to have a meaningful discussion about um, pay now. I think that the uh, opportunities to solve this were far higher earlier, okay. and I think that they would have reached an agreement uh, earlier, but that was not uh, accepted by the government, so it's prolonged and uh, extremely difficult. And I think it's important to remember the impact on the families as well, not just of the individuals that are wrapped up in the conversation, but you know, I can remember as a, a, a guy studying from my A-levels when uh, my father, also a railman, uh, was uh, caught up in the rostering dispute in um, uh, 1982. And it does have a very, very big impact on the family and not just on those that are involved in it, some of whom may not actually want to mm-hmm. strike themselves, but the obligation as being the member of a union makes it very difficult not to. And I don't think the full implications of that on the people involved have been properly understood. Uh, let me do... T- uh, uh, we've only got about 10 or 12 minutes left, so let me take some contributions from the floor. Can we get the microphone down to this side of the room and I'll take the three on the aisle here so starting with the lady in blue um, on the aisle here gentleman behind you then the lady behind you if you could keep it to a sentence ending in a question mark and introduce yourself that would be absolutely fantastic councillor Jan Whitbourne from the Southern District Council Uh, Sir John Hayes is our MP I have been leading on the ticket office which you nicely have mentioned twice Um, it's been really terrible where we live because we live where uh, the station is forgotten. We have a lot of volunteers. We look after the gardens and everything. Mm. And it is volunteers from drivers that have now retired. uh, And they're very, very passionate. I would like to know what is going to happen now uh, about the ticket office. We led a big campaign. I have got hundreds of signatures of people. We're in rural area. A lot of people, no internet. Um, that some people haven't even got a phone. We would like, if possible, to know where we're going for this. I've had the CEO, Will Rogers, down uh, with the MP, yeah. and he's 
very kindly kept in touch, but that doesn't help okay. us. I want to know what's going to happen now. Okay. Gentleman behind you. And if you could introduce yourself, sir. Yeah, I'm Tony Bly. I live in Wiltshire, and uh, we have one train an hour, and it's usually about four or five carriages. So I, I love going on the train, but I usually don't because of that once an hour thing. You know, there's a lot of dead time either end. Um, and also because it, it may not turn up. <laughs> where, where in Wiltshire? Uh, Warminster. Oh, yeah. So we're on the line from uh, Salisbury. Yeah, I got it. Bath. Yeah. That's one train an hour what, into London? Or, or? Uh, no. No, one, one train an hour to, to Bath Cardiff or Bristol right. or okay. to Southampton or, or Portsmouth. Um, so what I would like um, is for that four-carriage train to be split into four autonomous trains without drivers, Chris, <laughs> um, that come along every 15 minutes. That would make the situation so that you don't even have to look at a timetable. You could just turn up, the carriage comes along every, every 10 or 15 minutes, you get on, you get off the other end. Um, what, what, so when are we going to see autonomous trains, cheaper, uh, more reliable? And the lady behind you, again, if you could introduce yourself. Uh, Penny Gaines, Chair of Stop HS2. Um, I used to live in Greg's constituency, I now live in East Dorset. Um, oh, well. My question is perhaps more to Greg. You've mentioned um, on television as well about the possibilities of doing something else with the oh. land that's been devastated for HS2. Is it just sort of um, back of the envelope ideas or are they further developed and are there more ideas for other parts of the line such as at Euston? Okay, Greg, well let me start with you and come in on that just to, uh, Penny's asked specifically about the, the, the reclamation of the land there, what we could do with it, just to remind our other panellists, I'll then come to uh, Mary, Mark and Chris, or automation of trains and the ticket office issue, what is actually going to happen next, but Greg. Uh, yeah, so it's Tony Barclay's work that has worked out of how you can get to that 8 billion loss figure and that factors in some of the land that has been taken and devastated that has gone too far to be put back to its original use that the level of lime on it you'll never be able to return it to agricultural land well what else do you do you do with it I'm very clear that that can only come with where communities consent uh, to what needs to be done to it so I'm not going to sit here and say we definitely need x thousand houses or distribution centers or warehouse or whatever it might be there's always got to be community consent locked into that uh, but we do have to acknowledge with that land taken and devastated in the way that it is to get the cost down there is going to have to be some give uh, on that front but Tony Barclay's done some very very good work on that to, to model how you get the loss down to, to eight billion pounds but I want to talk to the communities in my constituency that have been so badly affected by this about what they would consent to happening instead. Mary, your thoughts on, well, that was a specific uh, regional question, but on the, the automation of trains, I mean, and, uh, and there's this ticket office question as well, but, uh, uh, you know, Tony would require, would prefer one small train every 15 minutes. Well, of course, I mean, automation of trains on some lines do exist do exist today um, on mainline services I think from a developmental perspective it's, it's very very early infancies it's not being considered as it as stands but you know if you look to the future again if we can get long-term strategic planning on how we're upgrading the infrastructure because you would need to change the infrastructure to do this if it was felt put on uh, on certain routes 
then that is something that should be considered if we take, which we should do, is our railways as a 30-year strategic solution uh, in terms of good local services that then um, combine an integrated facility into key um, uh, towns and cities. Uh, so I don't think that's daft. I think it's something, again, that if we could get into a more strategic mindset and then make a plan and stick to it, bearing in mind we still only have, I think, the whole of the UK rail network electrified to about 38%. Um, and there's a conundrum on decarbonisation even before automation um, is, is one that should be considered on certain lines of route in the same way that battery, hydrogen supports other alternatives to electrification in the future. Mark, a few things to get your teeth into there. Take your pick. Um, so on automation, I think uh, Mary's absolutely answered it. So we've done some work at RSSB about that. Um, perfectly possible, and as Mary has said, it already exists in some parts of uh, uh, the um, international rail network uh, and also on some um, underground lines is perfectly possible um, but it does require that big upfront investment and I think that's the, um, the, the central issue here in terms of making that long-term investment to see the payback over uh, um, uh, the years to come in the future. In terms of uh, ticket offices um, I think absolutely uh, that they form a central hub for a local community and they are and, and, and we have some superstars in terms of some staff that uh, work at those stations and they do make customers feel very valued. I think the, the problem that we've got at the moment is there are two separate things going on. One is around how do we move staff that are almost trapped into a ticket office out onto the platform so they can actually provide a better customer service to people in and around the station environment and actually help them with their queries, help them get on a train if they have accessibility needs and generally provide better overall uh, response to customers. There is also a separate issue about uh, hours that the ticket office is open and I think that's part again of the uh, industry trying to manage within the funding that's being made available to it and one of the central things that we have got to sort out and certainly there's been a lot of effort but perhaps not much evidence of what the outcome is in terms of simplifying fares because at the moment it is quite complicated and I think people have a distrust of what they actually get out of a machine so sometimes if they type in an inquiry into the machine they don't necessarily believe that they're getting the best value for money and it is about getting that conversation going that the machine is capable of giving the right uh, ticket for the journey and that it is the best offer and as good or better than they could get if they went to a window but I accept as an industry we've not perhaps communicated that in the way that we need to. Chris, very quickly, so I want to bring one more question in. I just want to cover off ticket offices and the Warminster question. So when it comes to ticket offices, I should be clear that I'm not adverse to change. And one of the things we have had to contend with, uh, or the industry has had to contend with, is actually a highly inefficient arrangement around ticket office staffing. Um, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to the initiative that's being proposed. What I am very much opposed to is where some operators have used this as a veil to actually strip staffing out. So you look on the Euston to Bletchley, Milton Keynes line, they're actually saying, oh yes, stations are going to be staffed, but they're not really because they're having a roving group of staff. In my constituency, both of my stations propose, although hopefully not for much longer, propose that the station staffing itself, regardless of they're in or out of the ticket office, is slashed by at least 50%. Um, and the times move to 6am in the morning when no one travels. I mean, what, what's that about? That's madness. So um, the principle's right. What's happened is wrong. Um, what do, what's going to happen about it? Well, 
I'm afraid the Minister needs to answer that question, but I think we'll see some change because I think the House of Commons is very much opposed to the extent of change that's been proposed, but I think there will be changes, but not, not quite as uh, rigorous has been proposed. And on the Warminster point, very briefly, um, I'm afraid I don't agree with you about the uh, driverless trains. I don't think that's a great move. Conversation, fuller conversation another time. For Warminster specifically, uh, the December 2015 timetable saw an additional three trains each way to London, connecting you to London properly for the first time. I would agree with you that your Cardiff Portsmouth through trains need to be longer because they are busier. But the point actually that's coming through is that um, the railway has ceased to become demand responsive as a result of the emergency measures agreements that happened post-COVID. You know, it is madness that we are, you know, we're trying to basically fit a quart into a pint pot when it comes to having an hourly or sometimes more frequent uh, train service at times of day where they're not required because the demand isn't there. Yet, as Mark was outlining earlier, we've seen a surge in demand in, you know, say, Tuesday to Thursday. So m my nearest station is Sherbourne, not too far away from you. Thursday, when uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the car park is packed, but the timetable is not any different to Monday and Friday. And that is commercial madness, and that has to change. Thank you. We're right on the clock, but I know this gentleman wants to get in there, so I'll, I'll give you the last word from the floor, sir, and then closing remarks from our panel. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, David Clark uh, from the Railway Industry Association. The title of the session is The Future of Rail. So I wonder if we might sort of put a bit more of an optimistic look on things for a moment or two. Um, so the recent, most recent figures show that the, um, we've recovered to high 90s in terms of pre-COVID passenger numbers. We're still behind that on revenue, I grant. Um, but since privatisation stripping out COVID, the growth in rail patronage has always exceeded GDP. So I'm assuming we would all hope that GDP would grow. So why would we not be planning for growth? The, uh, we're expecting a long-term plan for rail by Christmas, according to So what. Could, would each of the panellists like to ask Mark Harper for Christmas in his long-term plan for rail? There you go. Well, let's end on an optimistic note, possibly. Greg, I'll start with you, then work down the panel. What, uh, you know, are there reasons to be upbeat about the future of rail? And what would you want from Mark Harper? And his there are always campaign? reasons to be upbeat, Mark. There are always reasons to be upbeat. And I think if we can end this obsession of government by shiny thing that HS2 is a symptom of and actually get into the nitty-gritty of the... Uh, the, those connections I spoke about earlier, the, the, the villages and the towns and the cities in regions rather than these uh, great glory projects that someone is seeking from, that is where we can actually make the biggest difference. And my ask, given that this is uh, uh, the IEA uh, and from my free market forum perspective, is the answer to that has to be real competition with private capital at risk, which has the consumer at the heart of it, not what is convenient for the railway industry. And if we can do that, I think we can have a railway that people will choose to buy a ticket for and to travel on. And that is the optimistic future as I see it. Thanks. Mary? 
My ask is really simple, is just to get on with the new build procurements that are due to replace the ageing um, rolling stock or those that are going to come under new traction. That's good for customers, that's good for the manufacturer, supply chain, and as we've said, my business, uh, Malcolm's business, we've got the balance sheets, the willing, the financial capability to get on and support governments as well, and it doesn't cost Treasury any money until those trains are revenue earning, and remember, that's going to take about six years, so let's just get on with it. No. Chris, and then I'll give Mark the last word. Chris. I'd just say that we have had strategy after plan after strategy after plan after consultation on those plans and strategies ten times over. Um, the country's had enough of consultation, of route utilisation strategies, of route strategies, of God knows what other strategies that actually deliver nothing. And it's not only a waste of money, it's raising expectations in, amongst communities that are not delivering and I would much rather now see a number of small-scale initiatives that really benefit the local communities, the economy, that actually are geared specifically to boosting passenger numbers back to where they were, and then we can build on that afterwards. And Mark, I'll give you the final word. Um, for the industry to be given back control of itself. Uh, in the year of Barbara Castle, she used to meet with um, Peter Parker, the then chairman, twice a year. I would ask for that to be returned back to the industry. There you go. Very simple. Now, um, just before I thank the panel, sorry, we, have, um, we are four minutes late, but that's not enough to actually secure a refund for any of you, I'm afraid. You don't get any percentage back. Uh, but sorry we've overrun. It's a fascinating debate each and every year. Um, my special thanks again to the Rail Safety and Standards Board for sponsoring it. It's only because of the generosity of our sponsors that these events can take place t uh, at all. My thanks to you and the audience and for everybody watching on YouTube who isn't actually with us at conference for contributing to the debate. Uh, but please join me in thanking our great panellists, Greg, Mary, Mark and Chris. Thank you. Thank you.